0: We're back, and I can't think of a better way to end today's program than to return to the Musso and Frank's Grill in Hollywood for more excerpts from our lengthy conversation with actor-director-producer Norman Lloyd. In our last installment, Mr. Lloyd talked about working with uh, another legend, Orson Welles, and uh, in this chat, we got around to talking about his relations with Alfred Hitchcock and Charlie Chaplin. In this clip, uh, the noise of... uh, Hollywood's oldest restaurant is rather prominent. And by the way, we are going back to try out their martinis, which are legendary. But uh, it was a work day this time. Couldn't do it. But uh, we start out talking about uh, Alfred Hitchcock and his, uh, let's just say, sense of humor.
1: He was great for practical jokes, Mm. which were practically small movies. Uh, They weren't just a a joke of a guy falling on a banana peel. He would stage scenarios. There was some extra who was making a nuisance of himself. This was in, Engla- in England. Okay. And then he said to the assistant director, tell the extra we'll give him some special business, but it requires his working from the top of the stage. So they rigged this extra, and they hauled him up to the top of the stage, and Hitch said, lunch, one hour. And they left the guy up there. <laughs> But he had a quiet lunch.
0: <laughs> you know, in, in doing research for this interview, I found an anecdote which I'd, I'd never seen anywhere else. Um, a story you tell. Charlie Chaplin told you he'd buried a million dollars somewhere here in Hollywood, and, and you were quoted as saying, you suspected that his wife Una came back and dug it up after he'd been kicked out of the country. Yeah.
1: it's fascinating. And than I suspect she did. You, you see, Charlie... Uh, uh, Chaplin was a man who, he was brave against the world. I mean, he had ideas that were only Charlie. He was wonderful. Now, that million dollars is a story in itself. He was, in the early 20s, twenty, twenty-one, the most famous man in the world. Not actor, famous man in the world. There was this company, that wanted to make a number of two reels with him. Now, Charlie had a brother, who was a half-brother, who was a star in his own right, Sydney, Uh but had given up acting, and he was a brilliant businessman, and Charlie worked out the deals with him. And it so happened that this company asked Charlie if he'd come to New York, to the Plaza Hotel, and work out this deal. So on the way, by the way, Charlie had to travel under the name of Charles Spencer okay, because of the fame. And at stations where the steam locomotive of those days stopped, there would be people out there waiting to see him because word had spread. He finally got to New York, pulled in at the Plaza Hotel, and he and Sydney were on one end of the floor and the company executives were on the other. Charlie and Sydney decided that they wanted a million dollars, which in the early 20s, an income tax is a lot of money. A lot of money. Charlie would go in the bathroom and stand in the tub without water and play the violin while Sydney went down the hall. And Sydney came back and said to Charlie, they'll only go for $500,000, and that's it. Charlie said, No, 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 we want a million dollars, go back. So he went back. He came back, Sydney, and he said, Well, they, 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 they'll go to 650. Charlie said, No, you better go back. Sent him back. So finally, they sent Sydney back and said, 750, and we're not talking anymore. That's it. And Charlie, playing his violin, said, Tell them I'm an artist. I know nothing about money. All I know is I want a million dollars. And so he went back, and he came back, and he said, "Charlie, throw away the violin, get yourself a bull fiddle, because you got a million dollars." Wow! Now, when Charlie told me this story, he then told me this strange part. He said, I, we took the million dollars and he said, I buried it. And I asked him, I said, Charlie, why did you bury the million dollars? He said, I knew as long as I had a million dollars, everything would be all right. Now, he was telling me this when we were playing tennis up in this garden and so forth. I kept looking around all the time. I see it. No clue. So, I didn't dare ask him where it was. Now, when he went to Europe with his family in that period, to show his family where he had grown up in London, his mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. and he was barred from coming back in the middle of the ocean, Right. they just said, that he couldn't come back unless he faced an interrogation about his being, uh, transporting a young lady across the border or something. This is all McCarthy stuff. Yeah, that's it, it was the McCarthy And what happened, they continued sailing into London, Charlie said, I will never go back. And they stayed in London for a short time, this is before they moved to Switzerland, and after there a few days, Una came back here. And since we knew her, we had dinner with her, and we knew why she came back. Really? But we knew. Someone later told me he had, had it buried in the studio on La Brea, but it was a million bucks. Wow.
0: Did you like the Robert Downey movie, by the way, with Chaplin? They, they no, I, with I thought it was very bad, but I
1: thought he was great. Downey. I thought he was great. It was so
0: sad. I mean, Chaplin was the greatest comedian. I don't know why this
1: movie had to be so lugubrious. Was... Attenborough didn't have a clue. I'm. In the picture, they tried to show Charlie's relations with women. Right. It was pathetic. I was telling Sharon the story about how, I guess, his second wife
0: was 16, and they were the authorities were taking a dim view of his relationship and about to close in when he came back and said, She's my wife. I just went to T1 and we got married. <laughs> Nothing could be done.
1: Una was a remarkable woman. She was a great lady and very gifted as a writer. I must tell you that Charlie once said to me we were walking up from the tennis court and something prompted him to say to me I never knew what love was until I knew this woman, Una. It was a great love story. They were wonderful people. Just as an aside, I grew up in...
0: in... It was then Niles, California, small town. Bronco Billy Anderson was making movies there in the teens up in, in Niles Canyon. Chaplin went from Keystone, pictures with Max Sennett, and he signed with SNA and he made four or five pictures, including The Tramp, which was made a quarter mile from my, my cousin's house up in Niles Canyon. So that famous scene where he just, the pathos, he twists the cane like, well, okay, I, I didn't get the girl, but, you know, life goes on. Was filmed, you know, right in my neighborhood. And I've always... The town is always proud of the fact, he was only there for a couple of months, but he did make this 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 iconic picture there, the beginning of this, you know, that, that character that he, he grew into,
1: and um, Fremont still celebrates that many years later. He would describe to me how on uh, City Lights, where he does the big boxing scene with Hank Mann, he would sit in his bungalow on the lot, a whole cast waiting out there, there were a lot of people, and he didn't have an idea in his head of how <laughs> to shoot. <laughs> and the money going out, he couldn't write a scene. He said all he could do he would pray for six o'clock to come along, so he go home. But he had the guts, you know. He shot that price fight scene over a period of six weeks. Looked at it after he cut it together and didn't like it. Threw it all out, but he said, I saw how to do it after that. And he shot the whole thing in a week. Well, the thing that I find so
0: remarkable about Chaplin is, all these years later, you get these kids, you know, my friend of mine's children, who are, you know, in the internet era, jaded, playing video games, and I, I've on more than one occasion said, I want you to watch this, and I put on a Chaplin film from the 1910s, and and they're all they're all sitting there spellbound. I mean, they're just like,
1: wow. I mean, it just transcends everything. I went to see the Gold Rush at UCLA, 2,000 seats in yeah. Royce Hall. The audience went crazy with laughter, yeah. and not only that, when he would do the set pieces, this stunt or that stunt, they would all cheer and applaud and scream while the picture is progressing. I mean, that's incredible stuff.
0: The San Francisco Symphony just just did the score that he did. I guess he wrote for for the Gold Rush. And last year they did a performance of it, playing with the film. It was a smash. I mean, people mm-hmm. would just people just went nuts. Same thing. And they did The Kid this year also with a jazz guitarist stopped doing the jazzy thing and actually played I think a score that went along with that
1: and that also a huge hit, San Francisco He's Forever Well the first time he talked on the screen he talked gibberish <laughs> that's in modern time he goes out on the floor and he does just jubble- about <laughs> sounding French or German or whatever the hell it was. Yeah. at which he was very good but then he began to write but you see, James Agee, who was our leading critic, and also wrote films, wanted to do a picture with Chaplin. The atom bomb hits, the world is wiped out, and through the rubble comes a cane, and then a derby. That's great. And there he is. <laughs> Chaplin turned the script down for interesting reason. He was then sick in his 60s, he said, I'm not long, no longer the same physical image. He'd gotten stockier. Right. His neck had thickened. Yeah. the good life, Cut the food, the wine, yeah. and so on, and he couldn't do it. He, he turned it down because he said, "I can't be that tramp figure anymore."
0: Chaplin was certainly victimized by the whole McCarthy era, but, but. Um you were too, Mr. Lloyd. You were kind of, I guess, I guess Lou Wasserman said that you, you couldn't work or for a long time you were sort of stuck Till Alfred Hitchcock came along and I guess offered you some television
1: work. That's right. There was a thing called Red Channels and there was two guys who ran supermarkets in Syracuse, New York and they dictated a list of people they said can't work. I would not say in defense of Lou. He, I like Lou. I considered him... Well, first of all, a remarkable guy heading this town. We have no one in this town like him. He was big stuff. And when they said that, he didn't want to jeopardize the programs. Well, okay. Then, time went on, and I went back into the theater, and Hitchcock, after a number of years of my dinner, he went into television at Wasserman's behest. Mm -hmm. It was a big thing. get a man of the stature of hitchcock to do television was that a plan to to sort of elevate the stature of television Plan to make some money (laughs) while you're at it okay (laughs) 1955 it was a great catch for the network so there was a lot of work to do and hitchcock had as his associate a wonderful woman named joan harris she had come here with him as his secretary and became a writer, and in the course of time, a very fine producer. And Hitchcock and Joan Harrison decided that I would be a good guy to bring in to help out. When they submitted my name, the network said, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. The news got back to Hitchcock. Network says there's a problem. And Hitchcock said, I want him. That was the end of the Blacklist. That's how simple it was, if anyone had just stood up, as he did, and said, I want him. That was the end of it? This was a terrible thing that everyone was buckling in, and he didn't. I was always grateful to him for that.
0: Thankfully, Norman Lloyd's career was rescued by his friend Alfred Hitchcock. He went on to be in the wonderful television program St. Elsewhere in the 80s, and he's still acting today and doing, I can tell you, a great job of it on the stage. Later in the summer, we'll air more of that conversation. Our thanks go to Mr. Lloyd once again for having spoken with us, along with my L.A. associates Bruce Bronstein and Phil Proctor of the science Theater who helped uh, bring us Mr. Lloyd. Phil will also be back on the show before the summer's out. I also want to thank in advance Heather Klinger who will be playing next week's program while yours truly attempts to kayak between Sacramento and San Francisco. That should be interesting. It should make some interesting radio i hope and yes all this may require jumping through a few extra hoops for you dear listener but we're glad to do it so we will in fact uh, in essence see you then you've been listening to radio parallax i'm douglas everett it's gonna be a fun summer stick around